in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Moolah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn. Hello, I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is Bad With Money. We're back. Can you believe it? Sometimes I can't. Today's episode is really getting into the coronavirus of it all. 
We're going to talk about buying safety. Folks who made a good amount of money or worked in a generally lucrative field before the pandemic are probably reaping some nice benefits of the job right now. Maybe that's working from home or not having to work at all. And they're definitely mitigating exposure to the virus by ordering groceries or other necessities to be delivered. For the people who get to do all of that, or even some of that, it means they probably worked a job a lot of people could appreciate. But since the pandemic, how we're looking at work and the value we assign to jobs has changed. Before, we largely valued jobs based on how well they paid. I I don't know, that's logical. Look how valuable it is to have money to buy yourself the ability to isolate yourself right now. So getting paid a lot pre-pandemic helps you during pandemic. But I came across this really interesting article in The Atlantic about how we're beginning to redefine the value of working class jobs. Since the pandemic began, essential workers are the ones who are making sure we still have groceries, the ones delivering people the things they need. They're essential, but they're unable to afford to be safe. So now it's like there's this class war between the well-off and the working class, which is long overdue. Why can only wealthy people afford to be safe? especially if their jobs aren't the ones that society turns out really needs to keep going. So in this episode, we're going to get into it. We got in touch with the reporter at The Atlantic that wrote that article. Her name is Olga Hazan, and I really wanted to talk to her about what's going on. Like the protesters from conservatives who want the economy to reopen, even if it means putting lives in danger, most notably the working class, to the sticky question of how should we be thinking about the fact that people making minimum wage are being asked to risk their lives so that other people can stay safe. I've had a lot of this on my mind for a long time now. I'm kind of obsessed with it. So let's talk about it. All right, we're going to give her a call. So um, can you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Yeah, I am a reporter with The Atlantic. I'm a a staff writer at The Atlantic and I cover health and science. Wow. So you're on the tip right now. Yes, I'm very busy. (laughs) So you wrote an article called How Coronavirus Could Create a New Working Class, which was incredible, an incredible read. Uh, Can you sum up what you meant by that? Yeah, so I really wanted to um, look into uh, the fact that so many of the people who are most vulnerable to infection risk right now are people who are in relatively low-wage jobs that didn't necessarily ask to be in that position. So they're um, you know, people who work in grocery stores or people like pet groomers or people who work in warehouses who kind of just wanted a job, make, you know, 15 or so dollars an hour or less and don't get health insurance. And here they are, they're like within arm's reach of hundreds of people every day and they're being exposed to coronavirus when all, you know, everyone else is safe and working from home. Um, so I kind of wanted to look at like the fallout of that and what the consequences of that might be both politically and for the workers themselves. Yeah, the opening of the article is really um, visual and and striking. Uh, It says, I like this part. I'm going to read your own article back to you a little bit uh, as as a fan. Uh, It says, the poor got socially close so that the rich could socially distance. And uh, that's kind of a thing that I've been trying to wrap my brain around this entire time as someone who does a podcast about money. Like the poor sacrifice so the wealthy can live. Um, and that's kind of like you talk about a thing that has gone on in history, like over and over and over again when it comes to plagues. 
Um, can you speak a little bit about the cholera story from Germany? Yeah, totally. So this was a really interesting parallel that I found. Obviously, like there's there's been a lot of plagues in history, and um, but I wanted to focus on this one in Hamburg, Germany, um, that happened in 1892, um, and it was a cholera epidemic. Um, so Hamburg, um, uh, it just has this a lot of kind of different parallels to um, the U.S. in the way that it was thinking about workers and the economy. Um, Hamburg was controlled by these wealthy businessmen, and they really didn't think that public health was an important investment. So they didn't have um, like a water filtration system in place. Um, they uh, the housing in the in the city was kind of bad, um, and so all these um, workers were really exposed to the cholera. And it, and so you had this um, this horrible epidemic within just six weeks. Uh, Ten thousand people died of cholera because there were kind of no. Um, public health protections in place. Um, and it was, it was almost like kind of interesting because, um, uh, the, the merchants in, in Hamburg actually downplayed the, the cholera epidemic at first. And they, um, kind of resisted imposing a quarantine on the city, um, because they thought it would be bad for economic growth. Shocking. Um, it's almost is- like we've never <laughs> learned our lesson once in the history of time and space. Right. I guess we don't really learn about this Hamburg cholera because it's like an exact, uh, like it's exactly what happened. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody likes to learn history. Everyone's just like, oh, you know, I'm sure. <laughs> well, just kind of what your article is about. But like, yeah, I'm sure everything will be fine. Right. Right. And so but like what I thought was like really awful about this is that, um, you know, obviously like the wealthy people in this city could afford to have, like have other people boil their water and like clean their bathrooms and stuff. But the people who were actually like living by the docks and like, like drinking the, um, the dirty water that had cholera in it were the ones who died. Right. Of course. And so, okay. So self-isolation is, uh, a luxury economy. Uh, and I'm sure people are slowly waking up to and realizing what that means, but can you talk about what that, what luxury economy means? Yeah. Um, so this was a, just a researcher that I, um, that I talked to who writes about like the white working class. And it basically just means that, um, in order to like quote work from home, uh, like you have to be basically rich. Like you, you have to have the kind of job where you're like writing tweets or, um, you know, basically, uh, like sending press releases or doing whatever else that you don't have to be somewhere physically for. Like, if you're an Amazon warehouse employee, you can't work from home. Right. Or if you work at Walmart, you can't work from home. So it's just talking about this gap between the people who work from home and people who have to come in. Yeah. I mean, so it's really become this strange thing about like who is an essential worker. And that has come up a bunch. Like who is essential? Who, you know, who has become an essential worker? Um And so can you talk a little bit about like how that's changed? Yeah, totally. I mean, um, you know, I, I feel like at the, especially at the beginning of the outbreak, there was just like a lack of, uh, recognition of the fact that, um, essentially like Walmart and Target and like Trader Joe's employees were going to become essential, right? Like the people who provide your groceries and who take Cheerios off the truck and put them on the shelves are, are essentially, uh, like essential employees. Um, but you know, for, for the longest time, they didn't have masks. Um, their companies, when they did implement like paid sick leave, they would tell them like, Oh, well you have to have a positive COVID test in order for us to give you any days off. Good luck. And they were like, well, I can't get one because they're impossible to get, you know, they would quarantine themselves because they didn't want to miss out on their paycheck. Like it was, it was just like this big, 
mess because these jobs have always been considered like Mm -hmm. low skill or like low like status in our society. And they've never had the kind of benefits that you would expect to see at a job that is essential, uh, which is like the kind of benefits we have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think people's mindsets shifted to what is essential and what isn't. I was looking at um, the protesters for Operation Gridlock and the people that have been protesting to reopen the economy. And a, a picture that stuck out to me was a, a white woman, shock of all shocks, uh, holding a, a sign that said, I want a haircut. And I was <laughs> like, you know what's interesting is like she wants this haircut because she is presumably of a certain economic status. But like, what about the the hair, the hair cutter, the barber, the, the, uh, you know, the hairdresser, like that person is probably working for like tips or at least a lot of mine are, are freelancers and they buy out the little chairs in the salons. Like it's, it's this like disconnect of like who, who is gonna expose themselves for you. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, totally. I think people don't recognize that. And like, I wrote this other story recently about Petco um, having uh, dog groomers come in and still groom dogs, even though human salons are shut down. <laughs> and people were like, I mean, look, like a lot of people love dogs. So people like were in, in on my Facebook page and in my Twitter feed, like, well, like my, I have trouble cutting my dog's nails. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, I'm like, I understand that. But you realize that you're asking someone to put their life at risk for the sake of like a dog, like a dog's yeah. nails. Yeah. It really has kind of exposed these, like, like, I don't know. There was an article, another article on our site. I won't call them heroes. Cause there was an article on our site about how they hate being called heroes. Yeah, it's really, it's like, it, it's like heroes are expected to die. <laughs> right. Right. It's like, I actually didn't expect to die when I signed up to work at Trader Joe's. Right. Exactly. Like, <laughs> like you're not reframing them as heroes allows us to feel fine when they die, which is fucked up. Right, exactly. Um, So yeah, so I don't know what to call them instead. But it's definitely this group of people who are like, wait, wait a minute, why am I in the line of fire? And I, I don't know, I guess this article was trying to capture that. No, absolutely. It was interesting, a part of the article where you talked about how in the past, I think you were like in the 50s, there was a a pride to being a, a blue collar worker. And you know, I'm I walk up and down my street, and um, there's still construction, people are still there's people still working on uh, these luxury apartments that are down the street from me. They're still being built every day. I pa- like not every day. I'm not leaving my house every day. But every time I pass them, I'm like, who's moving in there? <laughs> uh, like we're still on schedule for the construction. These guys are still coming to work and doing that. You know what I mean? But like it it's um, it's this thing where you mentioned like in the in the 50s, that kind of stuff was like, I'm the backbone of America. I'm proud. And there was like a pride to being that kind of worker. And then slowly it became like, this is someone who's uneducated. This is some like you could better yourself kind of thing that now like these people are so valued again. Is that a thing that could switch back? Yeah. I mean, so this was like the article has kind of two perspectives. Like one, any, everything could just stay the same and get essentially worse. So we could have even more inequality and more like frustration and, and partisanship. But I mean, there is this chance that like, yeah, I mean, like what you said, I also, you know, there was like a day when I, I was outside my apartment and everyone had masks on and was avoiding each other by six feet, except for the people who were like draining the sewer Mm -hmm. system or something. And they were all gathered in a circle around the sewage manhole and like without masks on and like, 
uh, fixing our sewage problem right, or whatever. Right. And like, I, I was like, well, this is like messed up because, you know, all the people who are, this is their only time outside are protecting themselves. And these guys have probably been working all day mm-hmm. without masks on. And it's, you know, I, I do think that like, um, recently in recent decades, there's become this sense that, um, Amazon warehouse jobs or, you know, McDonald's jobs or things like that have are like these low level jobs. Oh, you better avoid that. You better get an education so you don't quote unquote get stuck there. Right. But now it's like when everything, you know, goes to shit, basically, like uh, those are the people who we really rely on. So uh, some researchers think that there might be a return to more of like, you know, the factory man kind of identity of like, I'm a grocery store worker. I am like the most essential person when everything falls apart. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's wishful thinking, but there is a possibility that it could kind of return to that um, that feeling of like pride in, in your kind of blue collar job. I worry about that also in a cynical way because I worry that it's this thing where people, because it's a class thing, people will take pride uh, in let's say, being quote-unquote heroes and dying for the economy. I was just reading this article. I'm obsessed with this whole idea of, like, the Republicans are pushing where they're like, well, some people will die to save the economy. And I just, like, read about that nonstop because it's so wild to me. But, um, but you know, it's that thing of, like, when they say that, who who do they mean? And then mm-hmm. I And then these people are sort of forced to be like, oh, yeah, I, you know, like, it's like those tweets where they're like, my grandfather died he was a you know grocery store uh stalker and now he's dead and everyone's like your grandfather was a hero and it's like I'm uncomfortable (laughs) like with how this is being framed yeah totally I mean so I yeah you're right and so it's like it's like if we valorize this a little bit too much is it like seen as like you're a war hero where it's like get back in there yeah like you know thank uh, you let's clap let's clap for you from the safety of our luxury condo (laughs) Right, exactly. So, so I do think, I mean, there is a risk, you know, grocery store workers, I would say are like pretty essential, but I I do think there's a risk for the the states that are thinking about opening up their economies too soon, that they will be like small businesses, they want to work. And of course, like, these small business like cashiers and and stalkers and checkers and things are not necessarily like, yeah, I'm ready to sacrifice myself for. uh, I know, I know. But then it, I mean, it comes down to social safety nets where it's like, if we were actually doing that, it wouldn't be, I mean, it's so sad. It's these people protesting because they're like, please capitalism, take my life. Like, it's like very like, it's or like, you know, OK, don't take my life, but, you know, take my mom's life. Like, it's this thing where it's like you're protesting that you're like, I want the freedom to work. But like, it's not actually freedom because you you're like, I need to work. And I feel for those people. I feel for everyone. And like, I feel for like businesses that are falling apart. But it's also like that you going back to work isn't the answer. The government like actually providing social safety nets would have been great. <laughs> right. And I think that's like a really big schism right now um, in points of view. So um, I keep returning to, I know this isn't the one I'm on to talk about, but I keep returning to this Petco article because there was like a really interesting exchange between a Petco dog groomer and the CEO of Petco. She, yes. They have like an internal messaging system and she like messaged him and she was like, hey, I really don't think you're being fair. Like I'd like to talk about better protections for the dog groomers. And he was like, 
said something a little bit dismissive, like um, I'm missing how I'm not being fair. So many have been laid off and like, right. you know, be lucky that you still have a job. But like with the Petco groomers, what I was hearing from these folks that I talked to was like, I, they actually would prefer to be laid off, like to get unemployment. They, Right. Because they could then file for unemployment and have a paycheck. Like the thing I heard over and over again, I've talked to so many, so many workers like grocery stores, Walmart, places like that. They say like, I want to be home. Like I, I want to be home just like you. I want to be safe. I don't want to get sick. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not like they're not thinking of like, oh, thank goodness. At least I still have a job. Of course it's risky, but like I will do anything for it. They're thinking, I want the same, you know, like if I got laid off tomorrow, I would file for unemployment. They want that same luxury. It reminds me of when your flight is getting delayed, delayed, delayed. And then you're kind of just like, oh, this happened to me in Albany. And I was like, just cancel the flight so we can get the vouchers. Why are you doing this? And it was like clearly because they didn't want to give us the the vouchers. Does that you know what I mean? And so you're yes. like, you're like, oh my God, if you would just cancel the flight, we could all just take a voucher and go and figure this out. But instead, you keep delaying the flight so that what? So that you don't have to give us the vouchers. And that's like what Petco is doing, basically. <laughs> Right. And there's been, I mean, to be clear, like I've been mentioning Petco the most because that's who I heard from, but like Petco and PetSmart were in this weird arms race where they both kept their dog groomers on even as other uh, dog groomers closed down, like the private ones. So it's like PetSmart closed their dog groomers and then Petco was like, oh, yay, now we get like a one up on them if we stay open. And then PetSmart opened back up because they didn't want (gasps) to lose money to Petco. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, So, So they like... Yeah. So it's basically like they, they're they're making some money off of this so they won't close down. Yeah. And well, and I want to say also for freelancers, closing stuff down is, is also like a difficult double edged sword because I know for unemployment, it's it's much harder if you're a freelancer. I've been there. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. And I'm not trying to make light of people being unemployed. I just that's like been the experience of these folks that I've talked to. No, no, I don't think I think it's like it's like a no win. It's like you're unemployed. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And they and I understand wanting to work too. Like it, I, it's just like a total mess that the U.S. did not prepare for or handle correctly at all. Let's pause real quick and take a short break. We'll be right back. And we're back. Um, can we talk about the the people that are buying safety and peace of mind? Because I also read this article. I'm like knee deep in this or eyeballs deep in this, I guess. Like I read this article that was like uh, rich people flying to their safety bunkers in New Zealand. So like the <laughs> CEOs of companies and stuff like flying to their bunkers and, and the employees are still working. So like how are how is safety and peace of mind being bought right now? Like who can who can afford it? Oh, yeah. I mean, and we've been seeing this since like almost the beginning of the outbreak um, where, you know, suddenly you had uh, like the, I forget who was the NBA players getting tested for um, uh, for uh-huh. COVID and no one else could could get tests. And they were like, wait, how how are you? Get, how are you guys getting tests all of a sudden? Um, and I it was like 59 tests for the Utah jazz. Right. And there and people were like, wait, I've been sick for like three weeks. Um, but, but, uh, yeah. And, so, and I, I, there was like this joke going around on Twitter that was like, um, right now the best way to find out if you have COVID is to sneeze on a wealthy person. Cause then they'll get, uh, 
<laughs> they'll get a test. And I, I think that's just like one of the examples of the frustration that people have been having with like how this crisis has exposed inequality in our society is that, yeah, like if you're rich, you can get a COVID test, you can afford to go to your private bunker, you can afford, I don't know, I feel like there's all these guides to staying safe from COVID and they're all like, go to your separate basement apartment and isolate <laughs> there until you know you're healthy. And it's like people living in like studio apartments or one bedrooms who are like, I don't have that. <laughs> right, I don't know how right. I would do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think that's been where a lot of the frustration is coming from is like this outbreak has exposed just like how uh, wealthy people are are typically able to protect themselves from sickness. And especially now, like that's, that's just happening in, in a lot more obvious ways and in a lot kind of more blatant ways than, than before. Yeah. You talked about how wealthier people have generally have fewer underlying health conditions that would exacerbate COVID-19. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. And like, obviously how more people that make more money can work from home. Uh, I liked the, the dissection of the wealthy CEO who has a $3 million bunker who can afford to go there. And the, the ire, directed also at the $50,000 a year blogger, let's say. Um, <laughs> and the like, the, can you talk about the ways that those are like getting conflated or that those, you know, have, ha, ha, def, depending on where you put your anger is how things might change? Yeah. So basically the, all the experts I talked to predicted that after this, we'll have an increase in populism or this idea that workers deserve more. But there's like different types of populism out there. So there's sort of the Bernie Sanders style that's more left-leaning. And then there's, you know, Trump is also considered a populist, except he kind of villainizes the like foreigners or sort of kind of these like um, globalists or whatever his boogeymen are of the day. And like outbreaks do um, have a tendency to make us fear foreigners, to make us fear outsiders. So if people are like, oh, the like Chinese or the like liberal New Yorkers did this to us, you know, there's a real risk that you could have a doubling down on this kind of Trumpist sentiment of like, we hate outsiders and real America is the only good America. Um, you know, uh, so, so there is a, a risk of that. And, um, you know, it just kind of depends on like how like the narratives are kind of spun out closer to the election and how people start to perceive um, you know, whose fault the the pandemic really yeah, was. Yeah, because there's an idea that it could it could go towards middle class people or it could go towards uh like people that are in the middle because it's easier to fathom those people than it is to fathom like someone like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or you know, you can't really think you're like well, they're a billionaire, so they must have done something right. But the person who has the job one above me, that's someone I can really get mad at. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that actually, yeah, it does, um, you know, it does happen. Like, so the Washington Post had an interesting um, profile of this town called Wellsville, Kansas, ironically, mm -hmm. where everyone thought the virus was like this made up hoax. And they thought the media had made it up to like, um, make the president look bad. Mm. Um, which I thought was like, really funny, because it's like, you know, obviously not, but also that's like targeting the exact wrong thing. Like instead of, instead of targeting like the president for not being prepared enough for the right. pandemic, you're like targeting the media for pointing it out, which like, this is like what you saw in the lead up to Trump's election and is now like happening again. Normalized. In some cases. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So in the article you talk about, I'm going to read part of it. 
When the dust settles, there's of course a chance that low-income workers might end up just as powerless as they were before, but history offers a precedent for plagues being perversely good for workers. Collective anger at low wages and poor working protections can produce lasting social change, and people tend to be more supportive of government benefits during periods of high unemployment. I feel like I've seen friends who are more centrist all of a sudden being very radicalized by what's going on. Um, like, I, I'm worried that the protests and stuff uh, that would be done by leftists are not being done because we actually believe that uh, COVID could kill us versus like the people that are right wing that are like showing up to the Michigan um, state house to pro you know what I mean? Like what's the, right. is there evidence that people are being radicalized to the left or is it just, I, it's both, right? Well, so I will say that the what I've heard or read about the protests on the right, um, they've been kind of organized or sponsored by some like interest groups. That's that what are- my partner said. My partner said it's all my partner was like, it's crisis actors. And I was like, oh, now we believe in crisis actors. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're not. I mean, they're whatever, like they, their feelings might be genuine, but that these like these protests are like they have messaging and and things like that from like groups like freedom works which are yeah. all about like free business or whatever um but um you know i think i think a lot of people are starting to i think this has really shown us like what the government is for yeah. like i've i've you know a lot of people have been like where are the masks from the like strategic national stockpile and i feel like this is the first time anyone's become aware that there was a strategic national stockpile or that it should have stuff in it mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. like I, I feel like you know I, 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 for a long time and i feel like for the majority of the trump presidency we were sort of going along with this idea that like maybe we could just like not have a very strong like federal government and it would be fine and this has kind of shown the flaws in that reasoning <laughs> well we're very individualistic we're like our our thinking is if i need a mask i'll just go get one versus like <laughs> yeah. well it turns out you're where from where honey <laughs> <laughs> right right like i think this is kind of showing like and i you know with uh all the the restaurants closing and the bars closing and everything and those people having to draw on um you know, uh, the, the small business loans, Mm -hmm. which ended up not working so well. Like, I think it's like this very rapid realization that like, Oh God, at the end of the day, like the government is the ultimate safety net and you have to kind of make sure that it's strong because when everything hits the fan, like that's what you're going to need basically. Yeah. Except for the doomsday preppers who I'm very jealous of right now. Uh, I know, right. (laughs) If only (laughs) I'm very interested too, in seeing the ways in which other types of skills are suddenly really valued. Sewing, cooking, mm-hmm. like these very colonial Williamsburg type. Like if you could churn butter right now, like you're the most popular person in your in your city. Like it, you know what I mean? Right. It's uh yeah, it's so it's it's um kind of paired everything back to be like what is actually a skill or what is actually something that should be paid more or should have more protections or should have more benefits, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, that's yeah. So my apartment building um, is like a soulless, large apartment building where no one talks to each other. And but there's like there's been this very active Facebook group that started up in recent weeks where people are like trading like a carton of milk for mm-hmm. like a cup of sugar and things. And it's like very adorable and colonial um, and a little bit sad. But like, I, yeah, I, I do think that this. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's like part of what my article is getting at is that like, um, you know, I. I think for a long time we have like held up 
the wealthy as like being these amazing people who deserve what they have. And now we're sort of like, wait a minute, you don't actually deserve to be safe from COVID more so than me. So about that, (laughs) like how is this conversation about money and who gets to be safe and who's like thriving also about race? I mean, it dovetails with so much stuff, but can you talk about a little bit what you talk about in the article? Yeah, totally. I mean, so uh, one, one reason why some experts think that this won't lead to this brilliant renewal of like um, working class people being treated with dignity is that for um, the past few decades, and and we really saw this in the 2016 election, um, white working class people have kind of acted in race solidarity with rich white Americans. So rather than like support policies that would help all working class people, um, white working class people sometimes see themselves as like more white than working class, if that makes sense. Like they see themselves as like, I should vote with Jeff Bezos because he's like, he's just like me instead of I should vote with like other people who work in my same Amazon warehouse uh, who are, you know, black and Latinx because, you know, if we do that, then our conditions might all improve. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, one thing that some of the experts are worried about is that this will happen essentially again in this election and that, um, you know, because, um, so one of, one of the experts I talked to said white workers with lower levels of education have fled in large numbers to the Republican party and are increasingly voting based on their ethno-nationalist beliefs, not on class, um, solidarity, right. um, which, which wouldn't like, doesn't like really portend like a, you know, liberal kind of victory in 2020. Yeah. I mean, also it's so much like you could get into like rates of homelessness, which are who are more likely to um, be exposed to COVID. You can talk about the how the healthcare system ignores or doesn't take seriously the symptoms of in particular black women. Uh, and also, I think like the upping of racism, like, you know, uh, poor whites or whites in economically distressed areas attacking Asian people saying, oh, you're the ones who gave us this disease. Like it's this it's it's a. It's an overwhelming addiction to whiteness <laughs> as your default <laughs> setting, which is uh, d- it's like, I don't know how many other ways to say that this does not help you at all. Uh, and that like right. Jeff Bezos is not your friend. But um, do you think, I mean, do you think that there will be, maybe people will wake up and there will be better working conditions? I kind of, I'm such a pessimist, but I kind of have seen a, a little bit more radicalization and um and I and I've been doing these giveaways on Twitter where people have friends of mine have been giving me money and I've been giving it out on Twitter like in small donations and the amount the sheer amount of people that need help like I would hope that that's visible and people could could be skewed a certain a certain way and maybe everyone would rise up question mark <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's like a really, um, you know, the short answer is I don't know. I will say so there there's like a couple interesting data points. Right. So one study that looked at 15 past major pandemics found that they increased wages for three decades afterwards. So you do find that when something like this happens, it does kind of lead to at least a temporary bump for workers that um, that is is good for their wages. Also, I mean, if you just think about it logically, like a lot of companies are are giving workers benefits now that they didn't have before, like paid sick leave. Um, it's going to be really hard to take those back once um, once this is all over because 
you know, you're going to remember that you let people stay home when they had coronavirus. Like, are you really going to make people come in when they have the flu? Like, the worker it's, it's, will remember. Right. Like, like people are going to be like, you know, wait, this isn't, this isn't right. It's, it's like harder to claw things back once you've already given it to people. So that's sort of the one hopeful thing that I have is that like once someone gets something, it's kind of theirs to keep because it's, it's just really hard to undo that stuff. We need to take one last break, and then we'll be right back. And we're back. I want to talk about my favorite thing that's happening. Because uh, you wrote in the article, uh, entrenched beliefs about poverty and wealth are already being shaken up. Americans have long revered the wealthy, believing they have earned their place atop the hierarchy. The argument in some quarters has been that people should simply work harder or get more education to escape, quote unquote, dead end jobs like those in warehouses or grocery stores. But today, those jobs are more crucial than middle management and white collar firms. The thing that I've become obsessed with is how Americans hate celebrities now. Like, (laughs) yes. okay, so like, though, I think seeing everyone's homes, uh, like being able to see all these celebrities houses, because that's where they're posting from now, uh, it has like there's like no time for it anymore. It's incredible. Um, And can you talk a little bit about like that backlash? Yeah. So we have had a really curious like obsession with like the Kardashians and whatever else. And like, oh my God, they're so glitzy and fabulous for no reason. Um, But yeah, I really think there's been um, a really strong pushback against that. I even saw something today uh, like posted about um, the New York Times had a little a short article about how to work out at home. And there was like, um, whatever it was like, they were straining for ways to like, make it seem like you would have enough room in your apartment to do this stuff. And they were like, use your guest room. And (laughs) someone like circled guest room with like angry, like circles and like posted on Twitter. (laughs) Like, how dare you like, uh, uh, you know, imply that I have a guest room. And like, I do think that people are like, you know, wait a minute, like I am trapped in a tiny apartment, you know, at best, or I am like trapped going into my grocery store job. And like, how dare you post about your mansion? Like, yes, quarantine, yes. <laughs> like it's so like it happened so fast where we hate celebrities now. Like it is so funny the way that everyone has turned on celebrity, but also the ways in which certain celebrities have risen, risen to the occasion, like Lady Gaga giving money away and things like that. Like it's really like created this stark cutout of like who who has any sort of touch with reality and who doesn't. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think I've also been seeing some stuff about like how um, it, it was like someone it was maybe Bezos or someone else, but they were like, we're, I'm going to donate like whatever amount to help with relief efforts. And it's like, that is such a small, like people were suddenly Mm -hmm. like, pay your corporate taxes. Like, (laughs) you know, I I think you have this like sudden um, outburst of like um, people wanting these folks to be like good corporate citizens and to like do their part for society instead of just like, you know, donating or showing up on Instagram and saying a smoothing, a soothing like message. Uh, um, you know, I, I think like, there was like a lot of outrage, like Ivanka Trump doing that. Um, yeah. Like, she did like stay at home like video and people were like, no. Or well, <laughs> you because know? you're seeing their houses or like um, yeah. some uh, uh, Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher were like, we're going to make a, a, a quarantine wine and all the proceeds from the wine are going to go to coronavirus. And then I saw people posting and they were like, Who's bottling this wine? 
who's in the factory making this, this wine, you know? And like, it's so, no, I just did not see stuff like that before. There've been so many points where I've been like, why haven't we risen up? Why haven't we taken to the streets? Like, you know, I, I was in living in New York during Occupy, like all these kinds of things. And now I have this like little bit of hope where I'm like, maybe we will, maybe we'll <laughs> overthrow everything. Like <laughs> it could, could it really um, happen? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe. I mean, like, so this is so something that I often hear from inter, like international people, international observers, I don't know what you call yeah. them, but like people elsewhere about the US healthcare system is they're like, wow, it's so bad. Um, how have people not uh, like protested against it yet and like caused it to be different? And I do sometimes wonder if like it's going to take a galvanizing thing like this to be like the thing that just puts the pressure on and, and, you know, suddenly like everyone has health insurance or something. I mean, right now it's only getting worse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I, I would always think that uh, the people that really need the help do not have time to protest. They can't, they don't even have a second to think about why their lives are this way, or they don't even have like, you know, they've got kids, they've got jobs. Like there's no time they're sick. Like there's no time to think about um, taking to the streets or, you know, there's no time. I mean, now it's also interesting because a lot of activism has to happen online. So more and more people can get involved, even people who maybe like are homebound and wouldn't be able to, um, actually march in the street or whatever. I don't know. I, this is the most optimistic I've ever sounded on this show. I'm sure the fans (laughs) like will know, will notice that. So what can, I mean, I guess like, what did you take away from all of your reporting? Like what, what, can people, what can the average person listening to this or what can anyone sort of do? Yeah. I mean, I would just say, uh, like very generally like two things. One is like, remember this moment, like remember the fact that like, remember who is in danger right now and like how it felt to have all your chickpeas and things delivered to your door by someone who's been out there like facing coronavirus all day. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, carry that spirit forward with you as you go through the rest of your life, even after this dies down. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and also just like, um, like vote, like, you know, yeah. like elections matter and, um, you know, that it's important to pay attention to these kinds of issues because the, the people that we vote for, um, have a big impact on our lives. And it's, I mean, it, it is hard because they're, they're like, okay, everyone's going to have to vote by mail. Also we're closing the post office. Like it's very, <laughs> Hor- I'm la- like we keep laughing because it's so horrifying. Like my reaction yeah. to like things being awful is to kind of laugh, which uh, I- friends of mine do not like. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's like so awful. And I think like the people that are being forced to go into their jobs should I, I mean, should also I mean, they're going to probably remember this forever. I think there'll be long lasting trauma. It's everyone is all these people are suffering some people way more than others and there has to be something to come out of it and if you've you've done the research that says you know for for decades afterwards wages were raised and things were changed the last time there were plagues like maybe that'll happen here yeah yeah it's it's definitely possible I mean you know but a lot still depends on what like everyday people do Mm -hmm. and whether everyday people stand up for those people who are who are in the line of fire right now yes definitely I think that was everything Olga thank you so much the article was fantastic I'm gonna go read the Petco article now 
I loved Olga's suggestions of what people can do, which to sum up was one, remember this moment because we seem to forget history. And then two, vote because elections matter. It's really been up to local lawmakers to decide what level of care and forethought is going to go into coronavirus rules and restrictions. I, however, don't know that it will be that simple. I think there's going to have to be some kind of revolution. I I don't know how it's going to shake out. I don't have the answers for you, but I'm slightly optimistic. Um, I think it's going to be hard and awful and terrible, and there's going to be a lot of, of pain. But maybe these things that are being allowed, like paid sick leave, like work from home measures, maybe that will result in a lot of much needed change. I feel like the average listener to Bad With Money isn't the person ordering food to be delivered or ordering groceries to be delivered. It's the person delivering the food. At least from what I've heard from you guys uh, about your lives, I think our listener is the Postmate. (laughs) And I don't have answers for you. You are... You are going through it, especially because there are no other options. Do we take away your right to work? What if you're the postmate and this is the only way you're going to be able to get money? And what if the people at Petco, there's half of them that want to stay working because they're just happy to have income still and the others are scared? There's no right answer. The government should have taken care of all of us, but instead it feels like we're all having to figure out how to survive this pandemic on our own. And it's getting really divided by class. And guess what? People that want to go back to quote unquote normal, I have bad news for you. America has always been that way. Okay. I know it sounds like the episode is over, but it's not. I still need to say thank you for listening. um, And thank you for letting me be a, a part of your quarantine. And I hope that this is helpful or you feel seen or spoken to. Please go a step further to support the show by giving us a great rating and a nice review. I would really appreciate it. Even if you just want to give a five-star review and then write Gabby is good looking. Also, if you haven't already, make sure you're subscribed on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. The show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineer is Brendan Burns and our audio is mixed by Andy Christens. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Original music is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen, and our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. I'm Gabby Dunn, and see you next week. <laughs>